hello, I'm Jane Daly and this is my podcast for people who know. As a thought leader and work-life activist, I'm curious about people who are accelerating their work and life. And whilst finding their own balance, they have also found time to inspire others to do the same. My interest in Paul Morton started when we were thrown together to host a seminar on leadership, a topic that Paul and I have had many debates about ever since. Welcome, Paul. Jilly, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, I can't wait for our conversation today. But before we do that, Paul, tell us a little bit about you and what you're up to at the moment. Oh, um, goodness knows where to start. Well, when mummies and daddies love each other, they have, no, that's, that's going back a bit too far, isn't it, right? Uh, basically, <laughs> I've been involved in uh, software as a service companies working within ed tech and digital learning solutions since I left university, so, so many, many moons ago. And the way that I find of doing anything successfully is having other people do all the work, okay? The only way you can get other people to do all the work is by making them want to do all the work, giving them purpose, giving them a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And so I think what that's turned me into is something of a half-decent leader. Half-decent because you're never decent. You know, it's one of those, it's, it's, that's a lovely word, the asymptote. You ever heard of an asymptote? It's the line that never reaches the curve, never reaches the peak, you know? So that's the thing. It's, it's, a, it's a journey you're on that you never actually reach. So... The only way I can genuinely reconcile my innate laziness is by getting other people to do all the work. And by getting them to do the work is by giving them a reason and leading them towards it. And Paul, um, I have to you know, agree with you. You are one of the few people that I have met where you, your team have a joyous balance and we're always very commendable about about you so I can absolutely um, agree with what you're saying and that is rare particularly in um, in in some of the industries that you and I um, have have been uh, dabbling in should I say but we're going to talk a lot more about leadership on the podcast today but before we do are you ready to step in the time machine I can't wait I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to hold on to something though <laughs> absolutely so let's get in here now isn't it gorgeous i mean you know look it's at plush it. <laughs> it is absolutely velvet curtains who'd have thought it i didn't know that was your style absolutely i've had it chintzy, but you know it's okay just for you today now <laughs> what would you like to drink while we're in here i have a vodka tonic right lovely it's it, it, here we go right okay look the dashboard is lit up off we go. Now, I'm in control at the moment, so you've got to go where I want to go. And I'm actually going to take us back to 2008. Now, let me set the scene for this year. Now, um, this year really didn't start very well. It started with a great recession that was fueled by the US mortgage crisis. Shockwaves were sent through the market, the stock market in particular, when Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. And at this point, we saw a re-emergence of a term that you and I are going to pick up on later called VUCA. Now, this term VUCA was first coined in 1987 at a military college. And since 1987, it has been used in business. But we're going to come back to that. Other things going on that year, Barack Obama, the first African-American US president, Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt 
broke more records by winning the Beijing, um, winning gold at the Beijing Olympics. Beyonce and Jay-Z got married, even though her single at the moment was all about the single ladies. Um, Boris Johnson becomes mayor of London. And The Dark Knight was the film of the moment with the great Heath Ledger playing Joker, who sadly also lost his life that year. So 2008, Paul, what were you up to in this year? What's it like for you? Um, 2008, I was working in the heart of the city of London. In fact, looking out of my window, I saw Lehman Brothers shut down on that very day. I remember it. I remember the chap. There was a, a bunch of newspaper types outside taking pictures. And one of the iconic pictures of that very day, the next day, in fact, was of a rather stunned looking fellow walking out of the office with a box under his arm. And as it happens, I met him later. He lives in the same town that I do here in Hampshire. And uh, we had a little chat about it. And he said, yes, it was rather traumatic. He basically got into work and was fired hours later. Yes. So that was, was a traumatic time. Um, and the challenge at that point, I think I was, I was working with uh, uh, a fairly early on startup in uh, ed, ed tech learning technologies. And it was, everybody suddenly went, uh-oh, there was a big old, uh-oh, what do we do now? And uh, working in sales and revenue, it was, where are we going to get our next meal from? How are we going to continue to persuade people of the value that we can bring to organizations? What is it we do bring? Questioning yourself utterly. And some organizations didn't do that. They just tried to bash on as business as usual. And, they disappeared and you know many of them disappeared so it was it was a, a momentous i do remember that was an, a momentous year um and it's a good choice let's talk about vuca because that's absolutely underpins how i think we all learned to survive at least those of us who did survive at least professionally uh we learned to survive and i think this, this underpins how that really helped us get through that time yeah, absolutely. And I mean, let's let's talk about, you know, what does VUCA stand for, Paul? Because, you know, I know that we're going to pick VUCA apart a little bit. But, you know, from your perspective, um, it's no surprise, as, you, as you're saying, that it had a re-emergence in 2008 with all the things that we said were going on. But let's just talk about VUCA and, VUCA and what it stands for. Sure. I mean, Re-emergence in 2008. You said it came around in 1987 is because yes. of some, uh, I think it was the leadership work that some people did in the, the, the US Army uh, College. Um, and it took a while to come through, I think, to more common parlance. And it was, it was floating around in the military. But really about, about that time, I think it started to emerge. And honestly, right now, if ever there was a time when we're vukad, <laughs> it's now, isn't it? The world's gone mad. So well, let's have a look at what this means for us. Um, VUCA's uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, right? So volatility, we are in a constant changing world. Have we, when, when have we not been in a constantly changing world? Absolutely. I watched um, an 80s movie last night, talking about 1987. I watched a 1986 movie. I watched Highlander, you know, just for the Queen soundtrack. Oh, that was comfortable. It was nice to go back to the 80s. I like the 80s. I quite like the 90s. Actually, I quite like what we're doing just now. But the the time then, was it constantly changing? Was it, did it feel as, as volatile as, as these times now? I'm not so sure. I think you come, it comes with a lot of instability, unpredictability, faster and faster and faster change. 
what I think is the dramatic difference between 80s and nowsies is the rule changes. Now, in, at the moment, we've got lots of uh, rule changing around how you can behave and how you can work in this, 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 this time of crisis. But the rules were changing in, in that period of time. The, the old rules of valuation no longer applied. And then all of a sudden we found out, yes, they did. This time it is different. No, it wasn't. You know, oh, but we've gone from boom and bust. Remember him? Yes. No, much, no, no, no more boom and bust. Yes, there is. So the rules change. The norms change. Working environments change. So you've, you've just completed your SWOT analysis, right? And then you move on to your PEST analysis. But I tell you this much, you should be doing it in pencil, right? A pencil with an eraser at the top of the thing. So that's volatility. The, sixth, the next one on the line was what was uncertainty. So an uncertain world. I think one of the jobs of a leader is to try and predict the future. It's to, to shape your approach accordingly. Being data informed. Too many people are data driven. They're driven into a wall with numbers, as, as perhaps we are being right now. But I think being data informed is more valuable. So this uncertainty makes it very difficult to anticipate what's happening. It makes it difficult to predict how things are going to unfold and your forecasts all of a sudden are meaningless. So that's, that's the uncertainty that we find ourselves in. Things are complex, which is the third piece. The complexity of our, our experiences, things are no longer black and white. If they ever really were, but at least it felt that they were simpler, simpler times. There's multi-layers, multi-layered problems. We, everything is enmeshed, it's like spaghetti. It's this complexity that we can't, we can't find a single way out. And it causes us to be reactive. You're constantly reacting rather than being on the front foot. You're on the back foot. And then the last one is the ambiguity of it, this ambiguous stage that we find ourselves in. You're looking around. You're grasping at best practices. And you're trying to say, oh, this, this best practice worked in that company or for that person. I'm going to copy it. And that's not what this requires. We'll get into the, the second bit in a minute, I'm sure. But the ambiguity of best practice no longer being relevant, it's all gone. Nothing's determinable. Nothing's black or white. I mean, essentially, the demand on a leader today is the demand. The demands. The demands. There's so many of them. The demands on modern leaders are utterly contradictory utterly paradoxical. You've got, you've, you used to be focused on trying to do the what, but now it's the why and the how leading the what. And whereas you shouldn't be making mistakes in the olden days, now it has to be an accepted part of how you work. But let's not go into that yet. So that's, that's my take on what this, this VUCA thing. So you get volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Paul, um, I absolutely want to pick up on a couple of things that you said there because it resonates so much with me. The first one is about the difference between data-driven and data-informed, and I absolutely agree with you um, in terms of that term. And we need to make sure that we're taking insights, data, evidence from multiple sources and not just one source, which is it's this difference between quantity of loads of data against quality. You're better to have less but from multiple sources. And that's how you deal with this sort of VUCA world. Um, the other thing to pick up on, and the differences between 2008 and now, is people dismissing the term VUCA. 
And I saw lots of crossed arms in leadership conferences that I was involved in creating or was a participant of, of people just dismissing the term as another fad, another trend, another acronym to get your, your, um, you get your teeth into. But this time round, people have had these shockwaves like the Lehman Brothers that we spoke about and actually said, wow, we're in a world of innovate, dominate or die. And it's that quick. And if you're not in one of those three buckets, then something is going to happen. And for me, my question for you, based on what you were saying there, is looking back into 2008, when you were working the way that you did, what would you tell your younger self? You know, what have you learned from that period? Mm, a very good question. I think just to hook into what you were talking about there, the data-driven, data-informed piece, I think, yes, we had at that point a lot of data, a lot of information, and we didn't quite understand the power of it. I don't think we really understood the difference between really making pretty graphs and understanding and having, yeah, an understanding and analyzing what we were being fed. And I think that has almost led us to a point today where we do talk about being data-driven. And it's, it's everywhere. Everybody says, oh, I, I have to be a data-driven leader. No, you don't. You don't. Your job is not to spend all your time in front of spreadsheets. Your job is to ask. If somebody puts some data in front of you, you've got to ask them, what does it mean? What does this mean? What is your analysis of this? What is the context of this? Why are you showing me this? What is the goal? Did you have an objective that you then went back and found the data to agree with? Or how did you come up with this? A big problem in medical research is all of the studies that go out and don't find anything. We don't hear about them, all these amazing amounts of money that we spend on research. And there's a negative discovery. Knowing that something didn't work is just as important. So I think this, this being data-informed thing, that's one huge learning point for me, I think. That's a big takeaway that I would have had. What, what, a, what a great learning point. And look, you've had enough vodka now and you feel, you know, to me, you're a bit more relaxed. So <laughs> <laughs> let me set this clock. And I'm going to actually take us to 2020. Now, I know that you and I should definitely carry on, but we need to get out of here because it is rocky. It's turbulent. My goodness, if VUCA was ever a term, we are here. But Paul, um, you know, bringing leadership up to date, um, I'm going to be a bit controversial because I feel like I can, and it's my time machine, right? So leadership is in crisis to me, and I have enough evidence and I've got enough information from different sources to tell me that that is a challenge. And the things that were working in the past that maybe were sort of allowing people to trickle along are not working now. So that is my evidence for making that statement. So what are you seeing in this crazy time that we've arrived in? Well, the leadership crisis, I think, is, is, are we leading in a crisis or is your leadership itself in crisis? I mean, 
you go back again to the, the 2008, we've left that, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I left my, my glasses back in 2008 and I'm gonna have to go back and get them at some point. Um, by the 2008, leadership changes started at that point. So Luca started really, I think, to come into the leadership parlance at that point. And it was then that one of my favorite thinkers, a chap called Charles Handy, I'm sure you've heard of him. Absolutely lovely man, met him a couple of times. He came out with the idea of the heroic manager this command and control chap and a white knight or lady and a white knight. And that was his call to action at that point, that that then needed to change. The command and control point needed to change. And the military have not, despite what you might think, been doing command and control for decades now. They recognize that it just doesn't work. There is no way that you can forecast and plan to the end level what's going to happen tomorrow. All models are wrong. Some models are useful, but all models are wrong. Any multivariant system modeled will not reflect reality. So the idea that you have to adapt, that you have to change this, this is that our leadership is in crisis. And then you add in the delights of doing all this stuff remotely. You cannot sit next to people. You haven't been able to sit next to people for quite some time. And in fact, with the evolution of business as a, as a whole, I've had global remote teams for nearly a decade. Now, most recently through fabulous new technologies and the, the ease of using video, instead of clunky Skypes, you've now got beautiful Zooms and Teams and, and, and all these different techs that make it a lot easier to do, but are you still not there? You can't smell them. So you're distant from people. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. There has been this sort of remote working going on, you know, around the world for a long time. Um, at least, I mean, we're talking about going back 12 years to 2008. I definitely have examples of this from 15 years and, and beyond. I think that, um, you know, there was just in this year in particular, there was a, you know, leaders and managers, leadership was struggling with the idea of not being able to command and control by having people around them. Um, and it's been, you know, this forced nature of um, seeing people being, you know, told, right, stay at home. People have been really surprised, particularly leadership, at how successful, you know, let's not forget productivity levels have for the first time in many years and even a couple of decades have started to rise. Decisions that were taking six weeks are taking six hours. So what I'm really interested in, Paul, and a couple of things that you've been, you and I have been talking about, is this word of, well, if there's VUCA going on, what about, you know, what can we do about it? You know, what about anti-VUCA? Ah, now you're getting into something now. So there's a chap uh, called Bob Johansson and from the Institute of the Future. In fact, I've actually got one of, the, one of his books here. It's uh, Leaders Make the Future, one of his uh, good books. It's 10 New Leadership Skills for an Uncertain World. Great read. Some people call me the book doctor, you know, so I could prescribe books. I've got, I've got a few. So he came out with the anti-VUCA. He called it VUCA Prime, which sounds better. VUCA Prime. I call it the anti-VUCA. But it's an idea, and it's something that fits with my own style of leadership that I've evolved over the years and the way that I want to work and the way that I find that I want to be led myself. And I think that this little piece here, it's almost 
the core of existence, isn't it? Do unto others. Do unto others that that you would have them do unto you. Absolutely. That, don't tell lies. And these are the two things I tell my kids. It's the basis of life itself. Don't lie to anyone. Do unto them as you want them to do to you. And if you can reflect upon yourself, and if you know yourself well enough, you can understand others. Because within yourself are the seeds, the kernels of all humanity, of all knowledge, of all understanding. And if you know yourself well enough, then you can be a good leader. You can be a good participant in the team. You can be a good father, mother, friend, brother. You have to know yourself. So know yourself first. And what Bob came out with was this idea that countering each of the elements of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity were ways of dealing with each of these aspects. So you've got volatility. Well, what can you do about volatility? Well, the way that I think you can, the way I think you overall have to think about working in modern organizations is to think where you're going. You're going with vision in a direction towards a goal. Now, in the olden days, command and control, you could say, right, person A, do task X to the nth level quality control. Person B, do task Y. So you command and you control. You break it down, you have your Fordist, Taylorist, um, utterly controlled environment, which is fine if that's the reality that you are existing within, but it is not. So you have to combat volatility with vision. You have to give people clear purpose, clear direction. And underpinning that clear purpose and direction is the value set that you find your organization presenting. Now, values, you can either have living values or laminated values. My wife used to work for a multinational company and she had a little badge around her neck and it beeped her way in and out of the doors. And on the other side of this were her values. Right, no, I'm sorry. My values don't come from the back of a laminated postal postcard. My, value, my values come from my mum. They come from whatever faith you might have, from your environment, from the people around you. People, passion, product. But your values are really aspirational. The values of an organization are aspirational. They're, aspir as, they're aspiration in its purest form. And they should be used as a decision-making tool to help you to make those complex decisions. Because that's what your own values are for. You stand for something or you don't stand for something. And that's how you decide consciously or unconsciously what you're going to do and how you're going to behave in any given situation. And that's what an organizational sets of values should be for. So you need to have clear core organizational values that you do paint on the wall. You should laminate them, but laminate them in your heart, right? <laughs> so you actually make them live by using them as a decision-making tool. So that vision, those core values should help deal with that volatility that we find ourselves in. So you then think about the uncertainty, this crazy time we're living in. What is this uncertainty we find ourselves in? One of the jobs of a leader is to try and predict the future, right? You can't. You have to slow down. You have to observe what's going on. You have to 
analyze, be informed by your environment, deal with the data. But understanding something, again, goes back to understanding yourself first, because you cannot understand someone else unless you understand yourself. There's a barrier that you would put up otherwise. And it, that intrinsically requires that you make a commitment to constantly improving yourself. If you understand yourself, you know what a flawed human being, being you are. And that you have to then fill those gaps, fill that yearning for knowledge, I think, is, is part of that desire for understanding. So you combat uncertainty with understanding. And then the complexity side of it, craziness, all the stuff that we don't understand. When you're trying to deal with the, the chaos that we find ourselves in, there's a lovely little, um, I think it's possibly even a prayer. What is it? Oh, come on, mum, you'd remind, you'd, you'd know this one. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. How do you, how do you, how do you deal with complexity? You bring clarity. You find the things you can control and the things you cannot, and you have to be okay with not being in control of everything. It's, the ex it's exactly the experience that leaders today are discovering when their teams are at home. I can't let them work from home. They won't work. I don't trust them. I don't trust them. There's a strong word, Paul. Trust them. Because trust is black and white. There are, there, are, there are no degrees of trust. I kind of trust them. No, that's like being kind of pregnant. You either trust or you don't. There are very few things, I think, in life that are genuinely black or white. But that, for me, is one of them. So if you trust the people around you, you're working for, and you must have done because you hired them, right? Identify the things you can control, the things you can't, and be okay with not being in control. Understand the strengths, the weaknesses, understand and accept them, and then counter that complexity with the clarity that you have around what you are doing. So then the last one, I think, is the ambiguity. If you're ambiguous, if it's if your world is, is unclear to you, we're trying to bring clarity. If you are in this ambiguous place in life, I think, again, knowing yourself and becoming comfortable with change, becoming comfortable with stepping outside of your, your plush time machine with your shag pile carpeted walls, Outside of your comfort zone, right? That's what I'm saying. Outside of that and asking feedback from people. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a huge takeaway, actually, is if you are a leader of people, especially if you're a leader of people, you've got to ask for feedback. Normally, you're, getting, you're giving feedback. And please don't confuse giving feedback for coaching. It's not the same thing. But if you're giving feedback to others, that's fine. You're the leader. That's, you're the boss person. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you ask it, if you ask for feedback, then you as the leader, you are, well, a couple of things might happen. Number one, you might actually get it. Imagine that. Isn't feedback a gift? Wouldn't you love it if somebody gave you feedback every single time something happened? If you can create a culture of asking and demanding feedback at every key moment in your in your organizational life, every time you finish a project, end of every meeting, end of every phone call, every, every interaction, 
What could we have done better? In fact, what could I have done better? Wow, the boss is asking for feedback. It must be safe. It must be okay because he, she is doing this. Maybe I can do it. So what you end up creating is this culture because the culture comes from the top. The culture of feedback, this culture of safety, this culture of step up. We hire you for your brain. We have to know what's in it. The only way we can know what's in it is if you tell us. We can't read it. Step up. Share what's in your mind. Get the feedback from your peers, from your employees about what you could be doing better. And stay flexible. Stay open. Make sure your, your staff know, your people you work with know that it's okay to do this. In fact, know that it's okay, that it's demanded of them to do it. It's in their job description to step up. Because not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody's courageous. And our jobs is sometimes to give voices to the voiceless. But it is your job to speak up. So you, com you combat the complexity with clarity. You combat ambiguity with agility with this agile, flexible, nimble mindset. Nimble is probably a better word. Agile's got too many, too much baggage these days, I think. But with, with nimbility, is that a word? Nimbleness, there we go. At least today. Yeah, absolutely. So nimbility is we're combating, <laughs> we're combating complexity with, with ambiguity with nimbility, with, with this ability to change, to be flexible, to, to stay on top there you I, go. Love, I love the way that you are talking about culture so so you know on the playing field that I love to play in and you know what's so interesting about what you were saying is that you know using VUCA, VUCA with vision understanding clarity and agility all of those are much more human as well you know and as you've said you know you can't buy trust you know we spend billions on recruiting people and going through process after process and all of a sudden people arrive and they are stuck performing at the bottom end of their job profile which really we shouldn't have job profiles but we still do uh, which doesn't help and they're laminating their values and not living them as you said Paul so the only way to combat this craziness that we find ourselves in um, is is to be thinking about things differently and I like this idea of as a leader how can you bring these things to life how do you live and breathe these things by using vision understanding clarity and agility now as somebody who has experienced many interesting people on the road within leadership I've done various roles I've I've been privileged enough and I still do you know to call myself um, a leader um, I've partnered with people to do that I've helped um, people grow into their roles I've helped uh, recruit leaders and, and build assessment centers so I've been involved in leadership I coach people that are privileged to be um, in these positions in work but the impact of leadership on work lives is not good Paul in this climate that you and I are in so the question I have for you before we leave 2020 is what advice would you give to people who are privileged enough to be in this role 
of, of leadership where they are privileged to be able to employ and develop and grow amazingly bright, capable people. What advice would you give them to support people more in this climate? Leaders are ultimately hired for their judgment. And that's that application of that judgment that you have in the service of the people that you surround yourself with or who surround you. You are in service. You have a sacred trust to them. People spend more time with you under your command, your control, in the environment that you create. They spend more time in the environment that you create than they do at church, and they do at home, than they do with their children, anywhere else. So you have a huge burden, a huge responsibility to them. And we need to do very hard things. But we can choose as leaders to create the conditions under which we do them. These are choices that we make. They are sometimes unconscious, but they should be conscious. They should be conscious choices that we make. And right now, everyone is under massive pressure with business change and very emotionally charged environments that we find ourselves in. We've also got to understand that we need to lead towards an end. We're leading towards a set of targets and goals and KPIs and stuff like that. We've got to make money. We've got to make change. We've got to have this stuff happen. And one of the challenges that if you are a leader of a significant organization, there are only so many buttons you can push. There are only so much, there's only so much you can actually do. And what is quite attractive as a leader, especially if somebody is a new or new in an organization, is to do something. So what is that something you can do? You can change, you can transform, you can put a new program, you, you make all this stuff happen. But all of that, I think, can affect progress. It certainly affects productivity. I think one of the things that has happened almost paradoxically most recently is that we've had this strange sense of disconnect and discomfort, but stability at the same time. We've all been at home. We've had this crazy routine. We've had this upturned set of patterns. We've got this root that has emerged by wandering into your dining room, sitting down with your laptop, and starting work. There's no commute anymore. There's time at home. There's these roots come out. And I think one of the reasons for productivity emerging as uh, higher as it has been, is because we have these roots, because we have the stability, you have this location, you have this nourishment you're receiving from the environment around you. And you are, people are becoming more resilient because of that. And when we make dramatic organizational changes, when we make these big transformations, you remove that. And that causes disruption. It causes the very opposite of the thing that you're trying to achieve. A lot of times it's necessary. A lot of times things are broken and need to be further broken before they can be fixed. But just because change and transformation is attractive doesn't mean we should do it. So I think there's a few things I would recommend. One of my friends, uh, Mark Sanders, he's written a couple of things for HBR. One of the things he writes about is time boxing. Get organized. Get your, get your stuff together, right? Get yourself together. Time boxing, beautiful way of putting things together. Take your to-do list, shove it in your calendar. Put it in your calendar. That helps you see where you are. It helps you see where you've been. Gives you discrete, objective, 
um, blocks of time to do stuff. Another thing that I would think about would be working in your listening. I think many people don't listen to understand. First, if you want to effect change, first seek to be understood, that sort of thing. They don't listen to understand, they listen to they listen in order to find time to speak. So I think that would be one of them. Learn to communicate better. Ask questions to open up the conversation. Dig in, but don't do it to show how clever you are. Do it to genuinely try to understand. And then lastly, I think, which fits slightly in with the idea of dealing with ambiguity and dealing with the, the uncertainty is learning. In that time-boxed calendar, you find create a to-learn list. Most people have a to-do list. Build a to-learn list, all the stuff you actually want to go and learn, whether it's antique guitar restoration or French or finance for non-financials. Create your to-learn list. I think those three could probably help deal with the, the chaos that sometimes we find ourselves in. And Paul, create, you know, I love your statement there about leadership creating these conditions because it's not about being conditioned you know it's this thing of you know a lot of the work that i do i find wow there's a lot of conditioning going on around here which is not good conditioning so this idea of wow you have the ability to create the conditions that could bring to life the wisdom that you have just shared which is fantastic right you and i are going off to 2030 now Oh, hang on a minute. I need to hold on to this time machine again. Right. It's going to go really fast now. So okay. for you, off we go. I'm on the coffee still. Um, Do you know what? I might just move on. I might just have a coffee. You're right. I think we need more coffee. And, you know, little do you know, the vodka's, you know, watered down. One dry. It's fine. But you and I have arrived in 2030. So um, what do you foresee? Well, I think the minute we are in the early stages of the fourth industrial revolution. I think at this point in 2030, we are starting to see the results of it. Unfortunately, I don't see my jetpack coming out anytime soon. I just don't see it. Neither do I see my um, Star Trek uh, transporter. But I think if you think through the, 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 the industrial revolutions that we had, right? So we've had coal, steam, water power, okay? Education started in the 1700s. You had uh, electricity, radio, telephone in the 1800s. And in 19, whatever it was, 1947 for the transistor, I think it was, semiconductors, silicon chips. Then dramatically we had the World Wide Web. Then Web 2.0, remember that one? When it wasn't just pictures of uh, on a screen, it was actually stuff you could do. You could you could buy things, you could do things. And then it all went downhill. And I think now the fourth industrial revolution. This is where you have the confluence of the digital and the physical. It's where you've got. I mean, what are the big techs? What are the big things that are happening? I think are going to come out. You've got artificial intelligence, machine learning, algorithmic decision making, that sort of thing. You've got autonomous vehicles you've got blockchain as a quite fundamental underpinning the big old database you've got this sort of stuff out there i think these are things that we're going to be um seeing a lot more of 
and yet it's going to be very uneven. I mean, the, the, the previous industrial revolutions were unevenly experienced and they were the benefits were very unevenly distributed. And I would unfortunately guess that access to clean water, healthcare and electricity are still going to be uneven. Challenges. Globally. I mean, in terms of humanity, I mean, we've been in existence for the universal equivalent of, of a burp and a hurricane, right? Trying to peer into the future and be ready for it as it emerges, I think, is as best as we can do. It's not one event that's going to happen. And when we look back on being locked down, I think we can look even further back and you look back to wars, you look back to famines, you look back to changes, and it'll all just, we'll shrug it off. We, humanity will shrug this off and move right on. We'll take the best out of the technologies that we have. We'll take the best out of the environment that we find ourselves in. Hopefully we'll do something to, to clean ourselves up. And I think we'll take the best out of the people that we surround ourselves in. And we will continue. I have huge faith in humanity, huge faith, un unbending faith in humanity's ability to overcome anything short of an extraterrestrial <laughs> meteor landing on our heads. And actually, you know, you know, Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. Piglet and Pooh are sitting under a tree and Piglet looks at Pooh and he looks up and says, ah, Pooh, what if the tree falls on our head? And Pooh turns to Piglet and thinks for a second and says, but what if it doesn't? So I have huge faith in humanity's ability to deal with these big, relatively slow-moving problems. Things like continual changing climate is a slow-moving problem. We've known about it, we're dealing with it, we'll get there. Things like famine, water supplies, the, 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 the amount of people we've lifted out of poverty in time, vast amounts of people who are much, much better off than they were I think that'll continue. I hope that the this as I said the fourth industrial revolution, robotics we've seen coming out, this will be beneficial to humanity. So I mean, Paul, what I'm taking from this is your hopes and dreams is that all of these, you know, things that could be incredibly valuable to humanity, um, you know, such as robotics, holographic support, 5G, all of those things. But it's got to be done for good, isn't it? And it's our job to plant those seeds now to make sure that we're not ending up in dystopia with um, aliens and whatever. Uh, we may find some by then. But, that you know, as you say, having faith in humanity. And I totally am um, with you. Uh, with, with all of that and I think it's our job and we always have and I absolutely agree that we always will one question for you before we leave um 2030 and I'm going to hand the reins, reins to you I'm going to be brave here but you mentioned this thing about being even now I'm going to bring up women I know you have a um, daughter and I know that you know women that work with you um have been part of your teams of absolutely seeing you as being someone who really does make sure you create an even environment that's what it feels like for women who work around you and with you but what advice would you give to women particularly in you know who are working in business or supporting business um 
with work-life services? What advice would you give them? Because it's not even, it's actually got worse, this terrain. And I worry that if we don't change things, we're not going to get to 2030 and have any, have made any difference. What advice would you give to women? I've been learning recently about the difference between equality and equity. And I used to be, I used to struggle with equity as an idea. I firmly believe in equality of opportunity. We are all handed the same two legs and two arms, most of us, and uh, the same amount of brain cells. And it's what you choose to do with them that matters. But then you look around and you discover that in conversation with various people, and of course the, the, the most influential person, the most influential woman in my life would be my mother and my wife. And my mother was the first woman to be served in the Glasgow University student bar, because it was all men. And she went up to them and they said, oh, sorry, darling, we don't do cocktails in here. So she said, that's all right, I want a pint. <laughs> so she got one and lo and behold. And when I started talking about this to my wife when we met many, many years ago, um, I realized something that I've never been discriminated against. I've never been put down. I've never been barged out of the way. I've never been, I'm six foot one, broad-shouldered, white, blue-eyed, Scottish, which of course helps naturally, um, and fairly well-educated. I've never been had any of this stuff. And I think I tend to be the one in charge. So it's to me to make the conditions where everyone can thrive, everyone can do well, everyone has the equality of opportunity, but the equity, the ability, the space to do well. I struggle to give advice to women because I ain't one. I think all I can do is to demand of myself and the people around me that our actions demonstrate our aspirations. What could I say? There's the practical stuff. And I do that. I've done that. There's the practical stuff of, you know, it's, it's really, really hard to say this. I don't want to come across in saying that women have to work like men or women have to persuade in a way or be anything other than who they are. It, it, this is why I struggle as a man to give advice to women. I, if there's one thing I would say, I would say seek out other powerful women who have done well in their own way, on their own terms, and seek to not emulate, but to learn from them, to learn their stories and to try and apply that learning as best as you can. Paul, so much wisdom coming out of you today. And the time is like, what has it done to you? It's amazing. It's oozing out of you. But we're going to get your mum's number as well because we, you know, we're going to have to share that because she's, she's definitely got the power. I love it. But I love equity. I think that's a great piece of advice in itself. To, to be thinking about. Now, I'm going to be really brave. Paul, over to you. Where are we going, my friend? In our time machine? Yes. Oh, do you know, I always thought I was born in the wrong time. I quite fancy 1745. 
Nice. Yes, 1745 in Edinburgh. Wow. So we're surrounded by a hive of political intrigue and activity and phenomenal artistic creativity and the emergence of whiskey distilleries and rebellion. Rebellion. I've always thought of myself as a rebel. I'm never really sure what I'm rebelling against, but by gosh, I'm going to find something good. So 1745, I think, is where I would like to go. I love it. 1745. You, you, you've, you've brought joy to my Up life. The Jacobites. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I love it. And, you know, I mean, if you had, if we were able to go to 1745, so what ripples would you be creating? This rebel of, of who you are what seeds would you be planting then so that we see the fruits of that a bit later there's a lot that happened then the, the, the emergence of the, the the scottish legal system really really becoming codified what would i do i do you know i've never really been an independentist never have but seeing the world around us i think we could do worse than perhaps advising a few of the clerks of session or a few of the, the more uh, active Jacobites, I would say focus your energy elsewhere. You ain't going to win that one. <laughs> Don't do the crown bit. Nobody's really got a problem with the Queen. Go to Parliament. <laughs> Fix the Parliament. That's what I would do. Sounds like a few chats in the coffee houses there. Maybe, maybe point the Jacobite rebellion to more of a political goal rather than a monarchical one. Does that make a sense? I think we could maybe do with this today anyway. We won't go there. We'll do that outside the time machine because it's a bit, <laughs> bit dangerous, a bit dangerous out there. But a parliament definitely needs some advice, mm. <laughs> some rebellion, in, in a, a good rebellion, you know, rebellion. Yes, a British rebellion. Yeah. We need a British revolution, a quiet, sensible, measured one. A cue. A cue. Exactly. <laughs> Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure to, um, you know, ride the time machine with you today. Go to all the <laughs> amazing times um, in, in our world. And, and as you've said, look, um, if you bring vision, understanding, clarity and agility and create the conditions for amazing and wonderful work lives, everybody wins both profit and purpose. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolute pleasure, Jean. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed listening to my podcast today. There's lots more podcasts, resources, articles and experts to inspire you on the People Who Know website. Go to the website today, sign up and join the conversation.